Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Mike Kins at David Hill Winery in Forest Grove. It's August 12, 2020. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to have you guys here. First question for you and kind of to introduce, introducing yourself into the, into the interview is why wine? Why wine? Well, for me, it, uh, it started uh, kind of summer vacations back in uh, Missouri and Lake of the Ozarks. And we'd always go to a place called Tantara and that kind of led me to food and wine. Um, uh, kind of restaurant management, um, which is what I went to school for at Oklahoma State. And, uh, you know, got into the restaurant business from there and you know, really enjoyed it. But I uh, had some uh, pretty um, stressful positions uh, kind of younger in life and burned out on that fairly quickly. And uh, But I um, knew that one of the funnest things I did was, was write the wine list and, and uh, uh, talk about pairing wine and food. So I knew somewhere in there you know, I would love to uh, get in the wine, but my path kind of went in a different direction, and it kind of is what uh, brought me actually to David Hill in the end. Is um, as I said, I burned out a little bit, and I had an opportunity to um, write a business plan for a custom boot shop in Guthrie, Oklahoma, and um, he couldn't afford to pay me, but he, he could teach me how to build boots. And uh, and so what was interesting about that was I had a strategic um, idea on how to move that business forward, and. But I didn't know anything about boot making, um, and in that process, really fell in love with the production of the boots and the crafting of the boots, and um, that's what I always loved about the kitchen was uh, creating a dish or uh, being able to communicate that to a customer and, and why that tasted good or why that went with what wine, and um, and so. The easiest way into the industry, though, was was distribution. So mm-hmm. uh, I met my mentor um, uh, back in a time in Oklahoma where. Um, it was just a great portfolio he had put together. It was Hearst Imports, Wayne Hearst, and uh, he took a chance on me, not having any uh, background in wine, and um, uh, it was it was a, an amazing experience, and really enjoyed that. Got to know kind of the old school way of distribution, and kind of met a lot of first generation uh, California um, owners and winemakers, and. Um, that really kind of set the tone for kind of my style and, and, and the way we do things here at David Hill. Okay. Um, and so so distribution really became what I was specialized in the industry in. So that's really what got me to Oregon. And um, But I always knew I wanted to get back to crafting uh, and being part of the actual um, um, making of the products and it goes back to boots um, <laughs> and food. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and so the, when I had the opportunity um, to have uh, my own brand back in 2004, I started it with uh, a friend of mine and, and uh, we focused on uh, old vines, meaning over 50 year old vineyards and uh, self-rooted vines. So that was our passion uh, for that project. and. Um, and then that got to meet a lot of great people as well. Uh, one of those people was Eugenia Keegan, um, obviously uh, well known here in Oregon, and um, and through that relationship, of course, David Alzheim, and and uh, back in in Oklahoma when I when I sold uh, Alzheim as well. Um, so when Eugenia uh, kind of fast forward to 2000 and uh, uh, probably seven for her. Um, uh, well, maybe not 2007, maybe 2012. I'm sorry. Um, here at David Hill, she was consulting, and. Um, 
when she kind of looked at this property, she said something that resonated with me at that time is that uh, David Hill had all of the um, just really good bones. Mm -hmm. um, it, it had really good bones. And when you, you know, we've all been on a million different vineyards. Um, what's exciting about this place is when you get out there, there's, there's, it's got its own um, energy. And it's, it's really a positive energy. And uh, it's, a, it's a special place. And so um, Eugenia was, uh, saw that I had a passion for self-rooted vines and knew I had uh, an ability to strategic plan, which is really what, what this needed. It had all the bones. It just needed a strategic plan to move forward. And um, you know, I was lucky enough that um, uh, the, the owners of my own, Eugene Stoyanoff, uh, trusted Eugenia with the recommendation for me. And, and it was the best decision ever made. And that, was, uh, that was eight years ago. So that's how I kind of weave my way through uh, restaurants to wine to being here at David Hill. Excellent. Well, I wanna, we have lots of questions about David Hill, but I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm curious about learning wine. You talk about kind of an old school distribution model and, and learning wine. Oh. Sorry, there's a cat. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. Mouse, he'll, he'll love you'll be here to uh, kind of <laughs> sit with us and enjoy the love enjoy it. the day. Love it. Um, you mentioned kind of old old school distribution. I'm, I'm curious. You 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 had a kind of a food and wine background, a little bit of wine knowledge. Tell me about learning wine from the distribution side and what it was that intrigued you about wine that wanted you to kind of, what made you want to keep going forward with wine? Yeah. So you know, kind of going back to the beginning, we, we, it was the '90s and. Um, you know, I understand how to communicate a dish to a customer or, or, or um, um, you know, cook a dish in a kitchen. And, and so what I liked about at least distribution at the size companies, you know, this was before kind of some of the consolidation of distribution, um, it really was about storytelling. And at that time, uh, it really was about uh, taking a product out and selling it, whereas, of course, distribution today is a little bit more about, you know, um, uh, fulfillment mm -hmm. um, and logistic, logistic management. But... Um, and so when I talk old school, I, I really mean that. And I, I do think distribution um, will continue to be cyclical as, as consolidation happens. There'll be a place and time for people that still tell stories and, mm -hmm. and, um, and distributors uh, that are a little smaller uh, to really be passionate about what they're, what they're selling and how they're doing it. Um, but definitely Wayne instilled that in me and, and, uh, uh, and that allowed me to kind of learn it from the ground up not just uh, how it's made, not just what the, you know, the different components of that particular wine I was selling was mm -hmm. and the stories, but really to get to know the relationship side of the business and understand um, how to build a relationship with the account and then build that trust to, you know, obviously uh, do a good job for the portfolio. Mm -hmm. What were some things about some of the, some of the stories as you learned them that kind of resonated with you as you learned about, especially when you talk about first generation California, early winemaking, what were some of the parts of the stories that kind of resonated with you that you, that you enjoyed sharing? Yeah, I mean, I knew right when I I decided to be a hotel restaurant major that uh, you know having a job that every day was the same was probably not my skill set or my personality type and so uh, when I started to meet those original you know winemakers I realized that you know they were really um, putting it all out there number one there was passion there was excitement it was um, not just a career it was part of their life and that you know they every day was a little bit different and they got to experience everything from the sales side of the business to production side of the business to obviously uh, business accounting uh, marketing and um, that really resonated with me and uh, um, and I liked you know the kind of first generation side of things I really liked how at that time um, even in Napa, even Sonoma, I mean, everything was really, really different. You know, there was uniqueness to every wine, even if they almost shared a fence line. Because um, that's back in the day when, you know, there was uh, most, most, you know, most winemakers were just uh, the original owners. And, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, you know, I just like the, the fact that, 
yeah, it just seemed like a, 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 a not just a career, but yeah, a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. so, so you mentioned um, coming to Oregon uh, starting your own brand. Tell me about what, why Oregon? What brought you to Oregon? What made you intrigued by this place? So I specialized in, in distribution. So uh, at that time, um, uh, Willamette Valley Vineyards had, uh, it's, uh, it was self-distributed. Um, but to really get that brand to where they, they wanted it to go, they, they kind of needed to actually uh, kind of professionalize a little bit. And you know, it had been a couple of years in a row that uh, uh, Jim had asked me to come out, and um, it just wasn't the right timing. When my mentor was going to sell the Glacier, I realized I didn't want to be part of a company that large. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed like the right timing. So you know, I was able to come out, and those relationships that, that Wayne had introduced me to, and the way Wayne kind of built uh, Hearst, I was able to kind of draw from that, and, and we built a company called Bacchus Fine Wines. and. Um, and, and, and helped take uh, the Limit Valley to where you know it, it could kind of make sense for the larger distributors to look at it, and it ended up going to Young's um, uh, in 2008. Um, and then uh, I had an opportunity to, to then continue on with distribution with the Mitchell Wine Group, mm -hmm. which was a great experience. And um, yeah, Mitchell, you know, David Hill was one of our, our uh, Oregon brands, and I got to meet Mylon and Gene, and and uh, and that's kind of where it all started. Mm -hmm. You talked about the consolidation within distribution. Obviously, it's a common topic for us as we hear about people and the struggles uh, with consolidation. Tell me about your perspective on the on the distribution side, starting at a place that's small, watching it get sold, and kind of watching the distribution model change. Uh, how did it affect your work? How did it affect kind of your perspectives on the industry as you were working for moving forward? You know, I'm I'm overall still very optimistic. I think there's you know there's a lot of people that. Um, if they haven't had experience with distribution, it can seem um, frustrating or overwhelming. But I think even within a specific region or specific state, you know, there, there's so much diversity still, even with all the consolidation. Um, you know, if you have a brand and you, you want your focus to be uh, specialty retail or on-premise, obviously not during COVID, but um, uh, you know, you, you can find a distributor for that as long as what you're doing is, is quality in the bottle. And if, if you're more geared towards um, kind of commercialization of wine and, and making wines that, you know, kind of check all the boxes for the average consumer, you know, and you're, you're, you're well capitalized, I mean, there's distributors for you that'll make sure they've got the grocery presence and, and be able to, you know, talk more numbers than, than what's in the bottle. But um, I, I still think there's, there's uh, both. Uh, and I, I still actually find that, um, as we've seen with food the last few years, as we've seen with food during uh, the pandemic, um, I think we're seeing the consumer, uh, a wider um, percentage of consumers really want to know what's in the bottle mm -hmm. and really start to understand um, how important that is and start to see through uh, some of kind of the back label stuff and realize that, oh, wait a minute, is this, you know, are these 10 wines actually from the same place, even though there's 10 different wines on the shelf that all have different labels? You know, and, and I find that really encouraging. Mm -hmm. and, and for um, David Hill, we're a medium-sized brand, so we're, you know, we're in that 15,000 case um, uh, kind of size, and, and our goal on our 10-year strategic plan is to get to 25. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about how we're going to do that. but. Um, and, and so that puts us right where we want to be. And uh, um, 
uh, and allows us to kind of work with both both levels of distribution. So we have some markets like Georgia where we're with uh, a larger distributor that during this pandemic has, has been really, really successful. And then we were with in Seattle, a, a really small specialty retail restaurant focused distributor that, you know, we just want to support them right now and help them get through this because mm -hmm. uh, we'll get to the other side and, and they'll be uh, exciting to work with again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I like having a mix mm -hmm. and I think having a mid-sized brand for me um, allows us to still um, uh, be passionate for what we're doing and make decisions. So let the wine make the decision, let the vineyard and the vintage make the decision, and not have to make the decisions in the boardroom. And so um, I'm, uh, that's kind of why David Hill is a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. So let's back up to your kind of initial impressions of David Hill before you started working here. What did you What did you think of the wines? What did you think of the place? And you mentioned kind of what intrigued you when you got here, but before you got here, I'm curious sort of what your impressions were and what you, where you thought the improvements need to be made. Well, uh, you know, I wish Mylon could be here. Uh, my impressions of, of David Hill before I saw the place was I knew it had self-rooted vines, so right there um, it had my curiosity based on my, my brand in California. And, um, but then you meet Mylon and Jean and, and you realize Mylon, um, obviously an amazing business person historically and, and currently, um, and, but he just had an ability to just communicate passion and communicate um, that he just wanted to do it right. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me, you know, um, I'd seen different businesses built in different ways and, and Wayne had that ability. Wayne. Um, he, he wanted to build something correctly and let it speak for itself. And I saw that in Mylon. Um, as successful as he has been in his life, he's one of the most humble guys I've ever met. And um, I really respected that. So the, uh, the thought of being able to work with someone like that, um, that's what I found at the Mitchell Wine Group with the owner Dave Brown. Um, I, I feel the same way about him and I saw that in Mylon. So mm -hmm. that's why I knew that for me, even before I stepped on the property, for me, uh, it was worth coming out and doing that interview. Mm -hmm. And then once you got here, you mentioned the kind of the positive energy and the, and the kind of the, the place that made you kind of feel like you wanted to be here. What did you see in terms of strategic plan that you wanted to implement? What was what were the needs and what was the what were the first steps you had to take? Well, uh, that's a great question. I, I think it all started again back to Eugenia's comment when she said, you know, it, it's got everything um, and it's just it needs to go from a hobby farm to a professional uh, business, and that that felt fun to me. That felt like, wow, that's a huge opportunity and a huge responsibility because um, at the time, the vineyard um, had some yield issues to where there were some concerns mm -hmm. about whether or not it was nutritional, uh, was there some farming issues, um, you know, were self, part of the vineyard self-rooted. Was there phylloxera? Uh, we definitely had short shoot syndrome. Um, you know, let's look at that. Let's let's understand what we have mm -hmm. and let's take the first couple years and not really talk about um, redoing the brand or trying to pick up distributors. Let's get in the vineyard and, and let's set some benchmarks. So um, I decided before we had the first retreat, uh, strategic meeting with the team, was I needed to understand the team, get to know the team, put the right team together. Um, we needed to also really understand what, where we were at with the vineyard before we took the time and energy to, to, to really start to implement everything else. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was pretty early on that I, I chose live to be kind of the benchmark for our farming practices. Um, interestingly, our winemaker, Chad Stock, he was one of the people that uh, I walked the vineyard with in that first year, um, just talking about different farming ideas in organic farming and sustainable farming. Um, 
you know, obviously, uh, I had a, a great respect for our neighbor, uh, Rudy uh, at Montanor, with what he was doing at Biodynamics. But for this farm and what we had the ability to do, uh, live made the most sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we just started with that benchmark. And, you know, we, start, we, we went off conventional farming. And, you know, we looked at where the Schertz syndrome was. We, we you know, we, we did some, um, some testing of the vines. What do we have here? Um, and, and we just started doing the basics. Um, you know, I looked at it as I wanted to make sure we had competency above ground and below ground. So not only with viticulture, but we, we worked with a consulting agronomist. And, you know, over the first 24 months here, it was pretty clear to me that not only could we bring the yields back, for, for, for example, the yields were, um, this is 42 acre on this property, it's 42 acres, and uh, we were getting less than 40 tons for like oh. five years in a row, and it wasn't because of dropping crop. And so there were some major issues, and so it was it was a uh, it was fun to, to see the vineyard kind of come back to life. Mm -hmm. uh, it was it wasn't anything you know crazy. It was basic stuff like we replaced all there were all six foot posts. We moved them to eight, so we had six up, two down, as opposed to four and two, which gave us um, a little bit uh, uh, better canopy. And of course, on pruning, gave us a little more uh, coverage of wire uh, for the next vintage. Um, obviously, getting off and getting into um, uh, cover crops and getting into an organic spray program and you know just just TLC and uh, and you know eight years later um, you know we're averaging um, right where we want to be just just over two and a half tons per acre is our average here and and um, we feel really good about the quality and and, and what Chad's getting to work with. Well, let's talk about Chad. Obviously, a big, kind of a big part of the team here. You mentioned kind of walking with him early on. Tell me about. What made you seek him out as part of the team, and, and who else you've added to the team here that was kind of that kind of pushed you forward? Yeah, um, well, I, I think um, we talk about benchmarks. You know, we had the benchmark in the vineyard then with Live, and and then I had to look at the business too. And, and very early on, looking at, at what Rexel was doing with B Corp, um, I uh, had an opportunity to meet with uh, the CFO Amy, and um, was really inspired, kind of by. You know, you had a hobby farm, and we were trying to turn it into a business. You know, let's just not look at, at the financials. Let's look at the whole thing and do it right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I really felt B Corp was that. And so we weren't even close to even wanting to apply in year one. In fact, we didn't get it till year seven. Um, but it took us seven years to do everything right. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was the benchmark for the business. Um, so we, we really had done a good job benchmarking how we were going to kind of take it forward in the strategic plan, at least the first five years. Um, you know, winemaking was key to that. Um, uh, and, and we've had good winemaking here, um, uh, historically. Um, but we were spending all this energy in the vineyard talking about our practices. And, you know, my belief is that um, conventional wine has its place. There's no doubt about it, or commercialized wine. Um, but if we're going to take all that time in the vineyard, let's also do it in the winery. And so, when I look at, at winemaking, um, for us, being natural, I think, is really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that, you know, obviously with, with our building, it's, it's to say native ferment would be inaccurate. But, uh, but natural wines, so we put the ingredients in the back label. That was really important to me. Um, and it's, it's hard to find, um, from my perspective, it would be hard for me as a, a general manager to trust um, uh, winemakers that have amazing creativity, but it's hard to find creative competency. How do you find them both? Usually they fall in one or another camp. And if we're going to be native and we're going to, uh, or at least, you know, uh, not inoculate, and we're going to um, 
not filter. Well, that, that requires a lot of competency, mm -hmm. but it also requires a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. And I really liked from tasting Chaz wines at, at different projects. I, and, and, you know, I really liked it. You know, whether you even take a, an orange wine that he had made, it tasted wonderful. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just about thinking about orange wine and having you think about it from how unique it is, mm -hmm. but you could actually enjoy it while you were thinking about it. And, and I knew that for this place, that's what we needed. Because we had an amazing following in Forest Grove and throughout Oregon and in parts of the country. Um, we wanted to make great wine and we wanted to showcase the vineyard. And so again, creative competency, that, that's, that was what I was looking for. And I, I was really excited when Chad, um, it was the same thing for me. When I, you know, I didn't know I was gonna do it until I walked the property. And I'm not sure Chad knew he was gonna accept it until he walked the property. Mm -hmm. And when you walk this place, uh, it kind of draws you in. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, what Mylon, I think has really, what he saw when he bought it back uh, in the early 90s. And, um, and you know, he's able to express that uh, maybe better than me, but um, if you were here, he would, would get that from him as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to, um when it comes to style, uh, you obviously bring in someone like Chad. Chad is a well-known style. He's a well-known winemaker from previous projects. Uh, tell me about the, the sort of blending that comes in from uh, when you have a place like this with its kind of storied history and you bring in a winemaker, how do they mesh and, how, and what did you want to project? What did you want David Hill Wines to be uh, out in the marketplace? Yeah, I mean, that's a fun thing about, you know, branding, right? You know, you could, you can be a brand I totally respect. We're like, we're super focused. We do two varieties and we do them the best we possibly can. Like, I get that and I, can, I support that. Mm -hmm. We are completely in the opposite direction. To be true to this place, we have to love cool climate, aromatic whites. That's what David Hill's based on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Chad has that passion. And, um, and, and that, that was an initial fit right there. Um, because, you know, when you think about, you know, everyone says the Cory clone. Well, the Cory clone is, first of all, Cory clones. <laughs> um, you know, block 21 is, is, more, is one block, but there's also block 15. Mm -hmm. And it's not just one type of Pinot Noir. There's multiple clones of Pinot, at least from what we have um, been able to um, uh, have sequenced. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also the whites. Uh, there, there's some unique white uh, from the original planting here. And um, you know, we want to be true to all that. And we want this place, if you're going to have old, you know, self-rooted old vines, you know, you don't want to, um, you want to be able to, to sense place, you know, specificity mm -hmm. is important, but also a sense of place is important. Mm -hmm. And again, in those initial, you know, talks with Chad, I wouldn't call them interviews, in those initial talks, see if we were, you know, the right fit for one another. It just was very clear that was a passion for both of us, just to make sure we taste this place through the wines, mm -hmm. but yet have, you know, have the biology in the wine. You know, that was really important to mm -hmm. us too. So we've obviously, we haven't talked much about the, the place and the history here yet. Obviously you're, 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 like you said, you're charged with keeping it the, the present and the future happy and not necessarily with the history, but tell me a little bit about the history of the place uh, as you've learned it and, and what, what about it matters to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, first, um, it's been fun to realize that we don't have all the answers yet. And that's actually really fun. Um, you know, when you think about the fact that, you know, in the late 1800s, this was called uh, Vine Hill. Um, and we know that, um, that it was planted, um, you know, and, and had a couple different white uh, varieties on it and, and possibly one that uh, Reuter called Burgundy, um, you know, this was a vineyard, and uh, obviously prohibition came, and uh, it became a potato and fruit farm. 
and the house kind of went into kind of a, a difficult time and, and never really came back till Milan and Jean uh, put the energy to bring in the old farmhouse back. Um, but obviously, when Chuck went over to Alsace to study, um, it was about cool climate viticulture, and a big part of cool climate viticulture is, of course, aromatic whites. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's really what this this farm. Uh, it was some heirloom pinot here, obviously, but this is about aromatic whites, and. Um, you know, his, his background in California, his passion for cool climate um, viticulture. I mean, and he did his homework, obviously, in Oregon to know that this was a vineyard. And uh, what's neat now is that, obviously, I, I never met Chuck, and, and uh, I've met uh, his son and his half-stepson. And, um, but I, I didn't know him. But I, I, I have, through others, gotten to find what he brought to the industry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm talking to a generation now that, that didn't know him either. And it wasn't about personality type or about success or not success. It was about, well, what did he contribute? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this place and, and kind of seeing it really come back to life is, is, is really rewarding to know that his original vision, you know, we're going to make all these unique aromatic whites. We're going to be true to them. And, um, and so for us, it's not about being super focused on one thing. It's about being super focused on the vineyard and allowing the vineyard to speak in, you know, a bunch of different types of wines. Because when you think about what we have in the property, and we have Sauvignon Rose, we have Chasselas, we have uh, a Flora, which of course is uh, uh, from California, from UC Davis, mm -hmm. a Gewurztraminer Simeon hybrid from Dr. Omo, um, you know, Melon de Bourgogne, uh, Pinot Blanc, Gewurztraminer recently. Um, it, it's uh, Pearl Java, you know. What can we do with, what can Chad, you know, with the excitement with, for aromatic whites that he has, mm -hmm. what can we really do to showcase um, these varieties uh, through our wines? And, and so 2019 uh, really represents the first year of us kind of stepping into that. We had, we'd spent the last seven years really focused on the vineyard and uh, making great wine in the winery, but now we're really... Um, instead of selling some of those unique grapes to other passionate winemakers, you know, we're keeping them here. You know, we're, um, we're bringing that under the David Hill um, uh, branding, and, and we're having a lot of fun with it. And the wines are, uh, are interesting and unique, and uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. You talk about kind of being able to be the kind of purveyor of what, what Charles Corey brought to the industry and, and with this place. What, in your estimation, what were his con major contributions to the industry? What are the things you like to get across about him and about this place? Well, I think I think realizing that, that uh, where we are in the Walnut Valley, that um, there's a lot, when you say aromatic whites, there's a lot of breath there. And, and it can be a, a lot of unique things. Mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, and I think his original test planting shows that, and the fact that these vines are still here and, and we're really producing amazing wines with them, um, I think showcases that. Mm -hmm. um, I remember at the 50th anniversary celebration, you know, David Allesheim spoke and he mentioned uh, uh, his contributions, um, you know, on, on VSP, uh, his viticulture side, uh, specifically VSP. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it, you know, I think just having the vision, I think, is one of his legacies. You know, we know it from beer industry as well from his, his you know, original microbrewer, um, you know, from what his visions of this place were. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I just kind of feel like, you know, we're, we're taking some of that vision and, you know, we're taking our own vision and Milan and Jean's vision and mm -hmm. we're kind of uh, putting them together and it's kind of starting to come together. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky balance when you have, uh, when you have that kind of multiple visions, multiple eras. Tell me about um, kind of walking that line and, and, and where you, where you see it going in the, in the next five or ten years? Where do you see the vision kind of going, ending? Sure, we knew to grow. 
we had to stay true to our mission, and our mission has to do with self-rooted, dry-farmed uh, old vines, right? So that doesn't, you can't just <laughs> buy a vineyard uh, of younger vines. It doesn't just, it doesn't fit, right? And so uh, the first thing we did was look at this property and say, you know, we have 150 acres, 42 planted of vine. There are still some opportunities there. So we've begun that clearing process. We've you know, last year we cleared six acres, and um, you know we've restarted our nursery and. Um, you know, we, we know that the passion here is, is self-rooted vines, so um, we're going to move forward in, in that way um, uh, with self-rooted vines and that's sick acres. Uh, we also looked at, you know, how do we grow more short-term, um, and we're very lucky that um, and just, just over the way, as the crow flies just a couple miles, um, you know, the Works Vineyard uh, became available. Um, and we really felt like it, it, it checked all the boxes in Laurelwood Soil Series and the Tualatin Hills AVA, uh, dry farm, self-rooted. Um, and, and almost uh, a little bit by bringing a sister vineyard home because a, uh, a lot of the cutting, a lot of material used to plant that was from the Cory Nursery. Mm. And uh, in fact, when we purchased the property, I actually got the invoices from the, the cuttings um, <laughs> on his old letter on the 1974 and the, the Cory letterhead. And, and uh, that was kind of a, a cool thing to have. Um, and so we acquired that in 2018 and uh, farmed it the first time in 2019. Uh, we, we purchased it right at harvest, and um, it's, it's farmable because it's so close, but it, it, it allowed us to continue to grow the brand, mm -hmm. and uh, but grow it staying true to what our mission is and what our story is. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit of both uh, as we continue to grow, uh, new planting and then uh, the acquisition of words. Mm -hmm. So obviously you've, you've emphasized today the self-rooted, self uh, and that's obviously an in interesting in the valley. Uh, so tell me about learning about this site and you mentioned kind of taking a few years to just kind of explore it and see what you had um, did you have a lot of loss did you have a lot of things you were concerned about keeping self-rooted uh, and as you go forward is that a concern of yours to, to, to not have to not be grafted it would be naive not to have a concern you know I wear the GM hat uh, as well as the vineyard manager hat but uh, um, what's neat is you know in, in the early 90s um, in the mid-90s, uh, Laurent actually consulted with Mylan, and in the upper slope that's planted that we're looking at here, that's on rootstock, and that's the Dijon Chardonnay and Pinot Noir clones. And um, so, you know, we, we need to do it smart, right? Mm -hmm. What what has always resonated with me is talking to people. The conversation always goes to there's something special about self-rooted vines. Now, is that because most self-rooted vines are older vineyards and that has to do with vine age as much as it has to do with being self-rooted? Um, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, well, what can we know for sure? Well, pH is interesting, but at this farm, it's hard for me to see that because, well, yes, my pHs are higher in our Dijon Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but I don't have self-rooted you know, Dijon, Pinot Noir, or Chardonnay, but yet my pHs are absolutely higher in my Chardonnay than our Semillon, or Sylvana, or our Moulin de Bourgogne. Yes, but is it varietal or is it, you know, there's typicity, you know, we talk a lot about that and you can read a lot about that as far as self-rooted vines and, and, and sense of place, of course, but everyone always says, wow, there's just something unique and, I, and, and that always, you know, specifically something, but there's always, it always gets the conversation, but you just can't do it. And you know, we've seen pockets of the world regionally where you know they, they've. It's not that they're uh, increasing the acreage, but they're um, farming as long as they can. You know that that self-rooted vines. Um, and then we talk about obviously the, the, what are those reasons? What are the soil types? And we know in the Laurelwood soil series, the low soils that you know we have well drained, good drainage. We have uh, sandier lows. Um, so there's calculated risk possibly there. Uh, at least that I can rationalize and help me sleep better. 
Um, uh, but there's a passion there, and, and, and um, yeah, we, we, we're gonna, when we look at, we're clearing a total of 12 acres, and there'll probably be a mix, um, so that we are good stewards of the business, but also better understand um, whether we need to completely say you just can't do it. And I'm not on that side. Mm -hmm. I'm on the fence, but I'm not on that side. Mm -hmm. um, I think more more needs to be learned on that front mm -hmm. before we just say you just can't do it. Mm -hmm. Have there been any flocks or issues in this vineyard? Not noticeable. Noticeable. Are there other places around that you're looking at, other places in the valley you're looking at that are doing something similar, that have a lot of own self-rooted, uh, that you can model yourself on or that you can kind of watch from the side? Uh, not that I know of. So I think obviously there's a lot of great self-rooted vineyards in, in the Willamette Valley and in uh, the West Coast for sure. Obviously Washington has a lot more than, than Oregon would based on soil. But um, uh, so yeah, I mean, having those conversations with those people about how they're farming and you know what we can do and, and understand the best practices um, uh, to make you know what's happening below ground uh, healthy and, and, and as rich as possible. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. Um, so you're part of the brand new uh, Twalton Hills AVA. Uh, tell me about uh, your sort of involvement and the importance, the involvement in that and your, the importance to you of, of being part of that AVA. Well, um, I feel really lucky that Rudy and Alfredo um, invited me to help out and uh, I really enjoyed that process with them. Um, you know, they're really uh, passionate people for this area and you know, we did know that the Twalton Hills um, Obviously, being in the Tualatin watershed, had checked a lot of boxes on being unique. We knew the wines from here um, kind of had what the, the lower wood soil can bring you. And we talk a lot about Pinot Noir. We talk about you know having a volcanic base with you know the, the lowest uh, top horizons, and you kind of how you have that interplay of the black fruit and red fruit, and the acidity and the complexity. And and that's you know it's well documented. Um, but I've seen out here, and I, and I didn't really know how to articulate it. But for the whites, the aromatic whites, uh, the way the tannins uh, are expressive and the way the wines are expressive in Laurelwood soil, I thought was, was super interesting. So when we looked um, to do an AVA for the area, we really felt like, you know, the geography, the ma you know, you can go to the, any map and you can really see it very clearly based on soil and then you start looking at rainfall and you start looking at all the other things that you need to make sure that it's, it's uh it checks all the boxes it was, it was right there the argument was right there and um so we felt really good about um doing it non-politically and um and, and for the most part we were, i think we were able to do that i think uh, it really was about the place it was really about looking at okay is it in the twelve watershed oh, it's a soil series um and, and, and it really it just became clear. And it, it, uh, the mapping was, was um, not challenging, and the argument just kind of fell in line. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it, it uh, it's a, uh, I think for, as, as we start to get the word out there and start to educate not just um, the trade but uh, consumers too, mm -hmm. I think it'll be an ABA that'll be easy to understand um, and, and be able to actually see very clearly. Mm -hmm. How is it going to be reflected in, in the bottle? What, what are consumers going to get from a Tualatin Hills AVA wine that is going to be unique to the, for them? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, we've already talked a little bit about Pinot. I think when it comes to aromatic whites, I, I really feel like, uh, uh, again, tannin and acidity uh, is, is really, really unique in this, in, in this um, soil series. And, 
Um, but again, that, that kind of uniqueness of the, the Pinot Noir having um, kind of, uh, yeah, it, it's that kind of uh, intermingling of, of that black fruit and red and, and, and uh, the acidity and complexity um, uh, within, within the soil series. As you look ahead for the future of this area, uh, obviously uh, historic sites here and a couple of around, do you see, what do you hope for for the future in the Tualatin Hills? Do you, do you see a, a growth coming? Do you see uh, expansion? Do you, what, what do you kind of see for this area as you look ahead? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of amazing vineyards that are here. And um, um, as the brands become more mature, as you know, the industry continues to change as far as investment in the area regarding the brands, um, I think I think it's just going to be experienced more. Uh, I think it'll bring people here a little bit, um, um, but it's not that it's going to. Um, all of a sudden, we're going to start seeing a lot of planting here, or the vineyards are here. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's already uh, it, it's an amazing area, and um, as as the brands become more mature and the wines get out there more, I think people are going to realize it more. So I think um, even though David Hill's been here for a while and obviously Tualatin Estate and Montnor and, and uh, Apollonia, Patton Valley, uh, and I don't mean to miss anybody. I mean, there's a lot of great brands out here. Um, but um, yeah, the vineyards are here and the brands are, are, are just maturing. And um, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty exciting time. So we talked earlier about kind of your initial impressions of David Hill. I'm curious, backing up a little bit, before you came to Willamette Valley Vineyards and kind of your first stop in Oregon, what was your impression of the Oregon wine industry uh, that you were getting into? What was your new, kind of initial impression of the industry uh, before you got here and then kind of as you started working here? Yeah, so you know, you go back to those original times with Wayne, you know, we were, we were strongly import um, in California domestic portfolio. and. Uh, I remember my first trip out for Oregon Pinot Camp, and then uh, a subsequent trip um, uh, with a guy named Alex Kroblin, who owns Thirst in Oklahoma City, and, and we came out and uh, just looking for brands the way Wayne and I used to do it in California, and uh, and just driving around and knocking on doors back then, was, we didn't have cell phones back then, um, and making making phone calls for appointments on a you know on the side of the road at a payphone, and um, those were really fun memories actually. Um, and, and just driving around and actually it, it felt the way, you know, it, it used to feel early on when we were in California, and, and it, but different. It, it felt, um, uh, and it's overused, everyone says it, but it was true. It really felt like it was collaborative. Uh, and, and, you know, you're talking to someone and they say, oh, if, if you're looking for that, you need to go talk to this guy instead mm -hmm. of, you know, just worrying about their own brand, mm -hmm. really worrying about Oregon first and then their brand second. Uh, that resonated with me. Um, you know, when I think of my favorite wines that I've imported over the years, uh, cool climate varieties have always kind of uh, been one of my passions. So that resonated with me just from a um, um, uh, climate uh, and uh, livability, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so it just kind of all fit together. And when, when, when Jim asked me to start Bacchus, I, uh, uh, it just seemed like a, uh, a huge opportunity and, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a great decision. How has the industry sort of grown and developed since then? What are the biggest changes you've seen in, the, in Oregon wine? Well, obviously when I came in, even though I was working um, for a producer, you know, my day-to-day -day was distribution. So obviously that's uh, night and day. Um, and, and again, I do believe it's cyclical, and I be do believe some of those um, uh, 
brands will have different needs and, and, and consumers will have different needs and, and, and buyers will have different um, focuses for how they buy wine and that will continue to help make sure that there's balance. Um, but obviously to uh, do financially what we used to do in distribution um, with consolidation and the way wine is sold, um, obviously you know for a brand like David Hill we have to be first and foremost focused on DTC mm -hmm. and, uh, and then secondly uh, enjoy the opportunity to uh, build the brand through distribution, but um, that, that's a big difference. When I started my brand back in 04, we were 100% um, FOB or distribution. Um, I don't, I don't believe a small brand can, can do that today. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a major change. Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's also a great change because you're really focusing on your story and what's in the bottle first, and then. Um, if that's right, then everything else falls into place, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that's a good focus for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, what about the the collaborative nature? Do you still feel that that Oregon is that way in 2020? I do. I, I come at this from different. You know, my background wasn't going to school with a lot of people in the industry for something specialized. My mm -hmm. my background is, is running distribution and getting into the side of the business through that. So I didn't have a lot of those strong relationships. Um, but whenever I've had a problem or uh, felt like I needed advice, um, it's been amazing, actually. Um, I, I do feel that way. And I didn't feel that way in, in other industries completely. Um, it was harder to do that, mm -hmm. um, meaning in distribution. Um, but in, in as far as the wineries in Oregon and, and, and just whether it be a vineyard question, whether it be a production question, whether it be a business question, mm -hmm. um, I think we're all kind of going through it together. And uh, I think we, we kind of enjoy having the opportunity to bounce things off one another in a way that is um, can be open and a little bit different than maybe other uh, parts of, of uh, the world that I've, I've worked mm -hmm. in. Do you have anything to attribute that to? I'm always curious. Why, why do you think that is? I think, you know, I think when you look at average size of winery and how they, uh, it was pretty grassroots from the beginning here in Oregon. Um, I really do attribute it to that. It, it wasn't started, you know, there's, there's different, obviously, um, things happening with the way things, uh, investments happening here, there's no doubt, and that's changing things a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, um, it started with passionate people that were day-to-day, -day. And, and that's, I think, that's why it's different. Mm -hmm. What about as you look ahead for Oregon? What's, gonna, what's the industry going to look like over the next decade? Well, I mean, I think... Um, That's a good question. I think um, over the next decade, um, you know, I think obviously the wines coming out of here continue to get better and better. And we're understanding um, how to farm our vineyards better because we've got more you know, years under the belt. The vineyards are getting more age, which obviously, you know, we've already talked about that kind of contributing to quality. Um, and the consumer, the average consumer, it's, it's on their radar now. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think as long as we stay true to who we have been back, you know, when we were building it, um, I, th I think it's still an exciting time. You know, I think um, the wines, um, well, there's a place for them, I guess is, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, obviously for most of us right now, as we focus on, on DTC because of the pandemic, and um, I mean, I think, you know, hopefully Oregon will very supportive to help the restaurant community get back and going as, as we can here. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, but I do think, you know, the, the leadership, whether it be the Oregon Wine Board, whether it be any, any other organizations out there, um, yeah, I think there's there's a passion to be part of community, and that seems to be part of each of our leadership's missions. And I think that also serves us very well and, and leads to a positive future.
Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the pandemic. Uh, obviously, we're still in the middle of it, still kind of feeling our way through it not, without really a, an end date in sight. Tell me how it's affected your sort of day-to-day wine life uh, and maybe how it's affected your, your, your plans for the future. Yeah, I mean, it's been, um, it's not been a time to, to put your head in the sand for sure. It's been a time to um, make sure, that, first of all, that, you know, the employees here and the community here is, is healthy and doing okay and that we are able to um, obviously keep the business going but also care for a person uh, and our people specifically. Um, and so that was kind of back in March we kind of went into, okay, well, what does this mean on the financial side and what does this mean for our people? And we're very proud that, um, you know, we we kept everyone, you know, we're still um, we're still moving forward. Uh, we were able to, to find ways to be creative. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that creativity, um, not, you know, we, we don't, there's no really silver lining in the pandemic, but if, if we've got to find a way through it, right? Mm-hmm. And finding a way through it, if we can find things that are positive, well, that that's good. Um, and so that definitely would be the case here at David Hill uh, from the way that our uh, customers and members experience the property. We feel we've been able to take one step another level. I think uh, when you have a property that's, that's especially in, in the spring and summer, that's a, a large outdoor property that um, uh, has had such an amazing following from the Forest Grove and, and, and Oregon community as a whole, mm-hmm. um, it, 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 it gets busy. And sometimes maybe, it's a, it's fun, but the wine may be secondary. And how do we make the wine primary? You know, the principal reason to be here. And I think we've been able to kind of recalibrate that. Mm-hmm. And so on that side, there's a lot of things that we've done to um, be able to make this property work during the pandemic that will stay. Um, you know, we we really like uh, our membership. Uh, we have an amazing following. I mean, we're still here because of our, our members. We probably, you I know, mean, I don't know how we would get through the pandemic without them. And so make sure we're focused on them mm-hmm. and make sure we're giving them. Uh, a feeling that we really are thankful for them, and we've been able to do that in a different way. And you know, from whether we're doing reservations uh, only, so that makes sure they can get in. Um, having areas that are specifically for our club members, you know, those things have worked well for us. Mm-hmm. Um, distributors, for me, it's it's you know doing the things we can do through DTC, like support James Beard Foundation, support um, uh, uh, the food bank. Um, you know, we want to continue to do those things, and for our distributors, especially our smaller distributors, it's just being there supporting right now. We want them to get through this, and, and that they're having a harder time than we are, mm-hmm. um, and and we want to see them bounce back. So we spend a lot of time just making sure we're there to support them, and um, and, and hopefully that that day's coming. We talked a little bit about the future for David Hill already. I'm curious, is there anything else as you look ahead for yourself here and for David Hill as, as, as a brand and as a place uh, that you're looking forward to in the next in the upcoming years? Any new projects on the horizon? Obviously, you mentioned your new vineyard coming online. Yeah, I think this this year has been a blast to, to work with Wurtz and actually farm it and get to know it better. Uh, there's an orchard there, so we're actually producing a farmhouse cider here now. So that's pretty neat because uh, back uh, David Wurtz, he, uh, he was the original winemaker at Rex Hill, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked with Oregon State University to do kind of a test orchard with um, English cultivars. And um, it's been fun to kind of get to know that. That's not an area that I have a uh, background in, so it's been fun to um, uh, work with Chad and, and some of Chad's friends that, that are in the cider world and, and kind of learn that. And, and uh, so that's been fun. Um, you know, really utilizing the farm, though, I guess, and, and make sure we're, we're, we're doing right by it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as we, we entered into live and, and, and um, uh, you know, start talking about um, 
what we're planting here and how we're doing our cover cropping and um, uh, you know we, we decided to put hives on the property so we're doing our own honey here as well um, which, which is kind of fun but you know back to the focus on wine which is what we are focused on I mean it is absolutely this year about works but then the next couple of years you know getting that new clearing planted and then clearing the other 12 acres we need to clear and you know kind of balancing the self-rooted versus the rootstock and, and what we're going to plant uh, varietally and working with Chad on that 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 is, is really going to be a, f a fun next next uh, chapter here mm -hmm. Without giving away too many of the secrets here, I'm curious: Are there any? Is there anything exciting in the plant on the varietal uh, that you're looking forward to? Any new varietals you're looking forward to putting in here that aren't here already? Well, you know, if Chad were here, there'd be a couple different conversations than, with, than when I'm here. But uh, no, was, <laughs> and uh, he'd be laughing right now too. But uh, um, you know, when we look at the nursery, that's intentional, right? So we've we've had the nursery now for three years, and the, the concept there is to be able to time that correctly to get the uh, six acres planted, um, and so we're looking at the heirloom clones that are here so mm -hmm. the Vadensville the Cremard and the Cory and, and the Cory doesn't just mean one clone of Pinot um, um, you know we know from the sequencing that uh, we were able to do with uh, Oregon State and the Dickey Rath Foundation very lucky to be included in that unfortunate um, that what came out of block 21 which is what everyone kind of calls a Cory block uh, was inconclusive so you know when we went to work with Jose um, and got back that at least block 15 and block 21, the, the, the samples we sent did come back as Pinot, which is as far as we're going to be able to go there. Um, um, but if, if you walk that block with me after Verizon and, and before harvest, uh, there's more than one clone in block 21 and in block 15. And so, um, you know, when I see Corey in, in nursery catalogs, I'm just like, well, which plant did they take it from? Um, so it makes, you know, our Corey bottling kind of interesting because we know it's not just one clone that, that Chuck planted. That, that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. um, but that's part of the mystery. It's part of the fun of the property. We're still trying to uncover that and learn that. And, um, and, and Chad and I both have that, that passion uh, to figure that out. And, um, you know, someone that uh, makes wine here, Jeff Veer, uh, also has a, a passion for this property. And, and he's more of kind of a historian personality type than I am. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's fun to, to continue to look at that. It's fun that I see the industry really talking about things correctly. You know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's really the conversation isn't about, you know, my last name is not Corey and, and Mylon and Jean, they have no ego whatsoever. Um, you know, it isn't about, we're not even sure when this was planted. You know, we can say, okay, it was bought in October of 65, so it's probably 66. But I'm really encouraged that the industry is now starting to talk about rooted versus planted. That's really what the conversation should be about. Um, I think, you know, I think the histories of the brands that have stayed in existence from the time in the mid-60s, you know, their, their history is, is clear and, and, and accurate. Um, the fact that this vineyard is finally coming back into a dialogue in the industry feels very collaborative to me. And I, I want it to be nothing more than collaborative um, because for us, it's not about exactly when. We want to be accurate when we say anything, absolutely. But what I do know is it's a 50-year-old vineyard that, you know, currently, you know, and it's, it's going to be here long after, you know, I'm farming it. So, you know, I just, I'm the current steward of making sure, you know, we're doing it right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, that's the most important thing to me day to day um, is to make sure that, you know, we, we keep doing, doing right by the place. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. So if someone were to ask you, uh, express an interest in getting into the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom to them be? 
you know, I think there's so many different paths. I think if and it's what's fun about, I think uh, I look forward to kind of looking through some of your other interviews. I mean, I doubt you've had one interview that's the same. Um, uh, and and I, I liken that to the restaurant industry a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is, is your, what's your passion is really where it needs to start. And, and, and dabbling in it all to find out where your passion is, it, to me, is the key. And that would be my answer every time. You know, if, you're, if your passion is vineyard, you know, work a couple harvests alongside the cruise. And, and you don't need to be specialized in it. But is that your passion? Then, okay, then that particular field, yeah, you do want to get specialized. And you do want to, to go and, and understand. You want to be confident. All right, so then viticulture makes sense as far as uh, a degree. Mm -hmm. um, you know, work a couple crush in the cellar or one, you know, and, 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 and see what it's all about. Okay, then, you know, competency of winemaking. And, and I would always encourage anyone that's focused on winemaking, don't lose the artistic side, but be competent. So um, uh, I think that's the balance for the industry moving forward. Um, I'm not a big paint by numbers fan. Um, and I saw that, you know, happen in different regions over time as, as a distributor. and. Uh, I think um, expressing place in Oregon is so exciting because you can still do it the way we're planted, um, the way we make the wine as far as focusing on, on clones and blocks. Um, it really allows us to be, uh, even within the same ABA, to be very unique within who we are as a brand or as a farm or as a vineyard. Um, and so, obviously, competency there. But then, you know, just understanding all the other unique things in, in the wine industry. I mean, from distribution to sales and marketing, um, those are all really important pieces. Um, you know, if, if, if you're uh, someone who really enjoys people, you know, I think tasting rooms are getting more and more important for wineries and the understanding of how to do them professionally and focus on DTC. Um, it's, it's a big part of it in the next 10 years. Um, but dabbling in it all before saying I just want to be in the wine industry, that's really what I would recommend to people to do is just take two summers to do those those things. And you can easily work in a tasting room, do a harvest, and get some experience in the vineyard while you're working in a tasting room to say, okay, I want to focus here. Mm -hmm. That's how I would do it. Mm -hmm. Excellent advice. I like it. Um, all right, so all the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here No, today? it's just so neat to have you guys out here. First time, your first time here. First time here. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a place that I'm glad people are talking about. I'm glad, you know, I, I'm really excited for Mylon and Jean mm -hmm. that, um, that we're trying to do the best job we can uh, to bring this thing back and mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're getting there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's being talked about again. Mm -hmm. And that was why Mylon and Jean bought it. And, and they bought it to do it the right way, and, and um, I'm just excited that uh, you know we're, we're starting to, to be part of the community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. Absolutely. For your for your answers today, for your stories, for your hospitality. We'll go and let you off the hook. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.